right. Pod Me Us, speaking today about Peru with Kayla Papuche, writing credits for Latino Rebels, Workers World. Right now, she is focusing her time on the uh, Pumas Collective. You can check them out on Instagram, at Pumas Collective. They are raising money for workers and bringing news about workers' strikes, left-wing struggles in Peru, racial struggles, struggles of marginalized people in Peru. We were just talking about this before we started recording here, but yeah, I, I do feel that to the degree that a lot of people know about Latin America, maybe they do know about Pinochet, maybe they read uh, Shock Doctrine. I read the Shock Doctrine, that was one of my first steps toward radicalization. I read it and haven't stopped being mad since. Um, but at risk of kind of flattening people's view of Peru here or oversimplifying it, you would say that Fujimori is, is a Pinochet-like figure in Peru. Oh, absolutely. They both committed genocides against Native people, against workers. They allowed paramilitaries on their behalf to flourish. And they've sold out, both of them have sold out our countries to U.S. and European transnational companies and established neoliberalism as the dominant, unquestionable economic system in the country and allowing the national bourgeoisie in both Chile and Peru to flourish in collusion with the West at the expense of our people. Yeah, I mean, really at a deep level down to this constitution, which was written in the Fujimori era, which is an issue of contention now in the same way that you, you still have the Pinochet era constitution in Chile. Fujimori came a little bit later. And so just to kind of set the stage for people who maybe don't mm -hmm. know as much about Peru, he was elected and then he carried out a alto golpe which is uh, kind of the thing that, that Bolsonaro has threatened to do <laughs> in the mm -hmm. past in Brazil. Can you tell us a little bit about how he came to power and then how he became the dictator of Peru? So around the time where Fujimori was elected was around the time that there was, I like to call it like a civil war kind of, it was like the insurgency that lasted about like 20, 20 something years, 25 years in Peru, which was an insurgency of leftist groups. And so the most popular being Sendero Luminoso, also known as Shining Path, who were kind of like the ideological foundations of this idea of Marxism, Leninism, Maoism. It was based on anti-revisionism. And, you know, there was another group, El Movimiento Revolucionario de Tupac Amaru, mm. the Tupac Amaru Revolutionary Movement. Then there were, like, those were two groups that engaged in more like a, in violent actions against the government, committing, you know, they'll call it acts of terrorism. In one instance, the MRTA kidnapped uh, and held people hostage at the Japanese embassy. They used to kidnap executive directors. So there was a lot of political and left-wing turmoil in mm -hmm. Peru at this time. And Alan Garcia, who was the, like, the center-left candidate, the Apristas, they consider themselves leftists, but mm -hmm. you know, they're, they're like social democrats in the country. And they waged a war against Sendero Luminoso and the MRTA, who might I just add that Sendero Luminoso and MRTA were mostly, they were, there was a lot of mixed groups people there, but they were mostly indigenous people in, mm -hmm. on the coast and in the mountains. And we'll, we'll get to talking about a little later why these indigenous people are so ready for the revolutionary struggle in, in Peru historically. But so they led a campaign against Sendero Luminoso and it didn't seem so successful. So the elites in Lima, they wanted to elect Fujimori because he was one, obviously a neoliberal and he seemed more likely to put an end to the so-called terrorism, put it to a stop. And 
I mean, I guess he did. He did so, but by any means necessary. And so committing uh, genocides, enabling a paramilitary group that mm. also functioned as narco traffickers into the country and giving them extreme amounts of power. The CIA helped fund these organizations that ultimately murdered indigenous people. The Peruvian military acted with impunity. And there was an instance, there's a story of this family in Peru and there were two brothers, they were indigenous and the military came and asked them about Sendero Luminoso and they said they didn't know anything. The military killed them because they had to be lying because they were indigenous. And so that was the reality of the situation for indigenous people under Alberto Fujimori. So the second re-election where you see so much violence committed by this man, you see so much radical change in the country, not for the best, even though he does seem like the strong man that's going to bring back the country to stability. And I think that that's something everyone always wants in, in no matter what part of the world is mm -hmm. that everyone wants to live in stability. They want economic, financial, political stability. They don't want to have to run into a street blowing up, mm -hmm. even though sometimes some might say that that is what's necessary. I think generally people want stability. So he did seem to be able to give that more so than any other candidate at the time. I guess the question becomes stability on whose terms. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And there is some suspicion that his second re-election was actually committed through fraud and not that he was actually elected by the people. And that's something that's, you know, kind of being discussed now, considering the fact that this coup, this self-coup also gave way to the legitimization of the 1993 constitution, which still governs Peru. And it's incredible to think about that fact that the guy who was behind this constitution is sitting in prison for crimes against humanity right now. Mm -hmm. And his daughter is also under investigation for corruption, committing crimes. So uh, the members of the, the Colina group also have been arrested, are also sitting in prison. And yet we still have to live under the political precedent they set. Yeah, you would think this guy is bad enough to be in prison. I mean, this is a bad guy, but what is the legacy of this person? And constitution being one part of, of the legacy, but... Also, you mentioned the role of the elites in this in this phenomenon of the uh, Chicha press. How exactly was uh, Fujimori able to kind of uh, consolidate the press behind him at this time to really consolidate support for him? You know, it's very funny that you asked this question because my my great grandfather was actually a writer for Peruvian magazine. It, the name mm -hmm. slips me, but the reason why my family had to immigrate out of Peru was because of uh, subliminal targeting of my great-grandfather being the editor of this uh, paper and being very supportive of the left-wing insurgents. Mm. And so I think that that is just a clear example of some of the things that other journalists, other members of the press had to live under is this fear that you are going to be killed and targeted or arrested by the government. And so ultimately, my family had to immigrate out of the country. Oh. Um, and, you know, in the 90s. And that is definitely one of the ways that Fujimori, like the strong man that he was, that really brought down the hammer was to silence any support of the left wing insurgents, any media that did. I think that there was a lot of government manipulation to divide the left and to make the right wing and neoliberal right wing stronger. Hmm. And so we talked about this a little bit, but I definitely want to say that when it comes to like how the elites present themselves in Peru, there's a really good documentary that folks listening to this want to watch. It's called La, La Revolución y la Tierra. And it just talks about the historical and continued power of the criollo elite, people that were settlers and were 
colonizers in Peru, their families with generations of wealth, generations of land that was stolen from native people, and how today those very same people are at the top of industries, they're at the top of the markets, they own all the politicians. So like what the Fujimori constitution allows this Congress to do in a moral incapacity clause to remove a president solely for the purpose that, and I, I would say that Manuel Merino, and I've said this before, represents the interests of the mining bourgeoisie, which are so influential and so powerful and have always been in Peru that Biscata didn't necessarily defend their interests. He defended another mm. sector of the bourgeoisie. And so that's how much power the constitution Fujimori has put into that. Now we've already had three presidents that nobody's voted for. Nobody's voted for them as president. You know, uh-huh. it was Kuczynski. We forget that in 2017, Kuczynski was elected as president just to right. get away from Keiko. And, and now we've had three presidents and nobody's elected them. And, and yet they're able to. And this Congress also, many of them haven't been elected by the people. Many have been elected with very unpopular support, very marginal support. Um, And yet they get to make all these decisions. They get to have all this power in Peruvian politics and decide who's going to be the president for our people for their sake of bourgeois interests. Yeah, that's definitely something I want to get into this election in 2017 between uh, PPK, PPK, Pedro Pablo Kuczynski and Keiko Fujimori, the daughter of Alberto Fujimori. Really, I mean, a battle between two different elements of the bourgeoisie. I think it's two mm-hmm. different elite elements. And But I just remember that time, it's, it's a lot of people who didn't necessarily like PPK. They were put in this position that's, well, we really don't want the daughter of this dictator in government. But just before we get there, I want to touch on this. I, it seems like a very essential element of kind of Andean politics, I guess you'd say, of a politics in the region is the indigenous element. This is a big part of politics in Bolivia, obviously. Premier from Peru, just in, in terms of raw population, maybe slightly less indigenous, but still very significant indigenous heritage in Peru. Um, yes, yes. But I would also say that the way that Mestizaje happened in Peru is that even though someone might be considered indigenous, like uh, my mother or my grandmother, they, they would be ethnically indigenous, but they're considered mestizos because they've no longer held on to their practices as indigenous people. They don't wear their indigenous clothing. They don't, you know, do farming. They don't do land work. They live in the cities now. They live in Lima. Ethnically, they might still be indigenous. Culturally, they still might honor their indigenous history, but but now that they live in the city, they've adopted more Western kind of customs. They are considered no longer indigenous, which I would say that Lima is in South America, one of the biggest and important cities in South America. And so I think that Peru has a lot of whiter, more mm-hmm. affluent areas than I would say Bolivia does. And that's just because of their uh, proximity, I would say, to like the coast and and having all these types of different industries. Uh, definitely Bolivia has its own thing going on too, and it's raised its population out of poverty, but Peru hasn't able to. But I just mean that there's there's more metropolises, I would say, in Peru that mm. allows for this kind of mestizia, this specific type of mestizia that isn't as popular in Bolivia. But there is a saying that we say in, in, in Spanish, but in English, it's if all the countries in Latin America are siblings, then Peru and Bolivia are twins. And I definitely, definitely adhere to that, which is why, like, 
what is going on in Bolivia and the way that they've created a plural national state that promotes the interests of indigenous people and also workers. And that you could see that despite the difficult colonial history, mestizos, indigenous, Afro, and even white Bolivians can all live together and build a, a popular country for workers. And I definitely see that as a, a viable option for Peru, despite the fact that in Peru, there's not so much calls for a plural national state. So would you say that that the example of Bolivia might spill over into the popular consciousness of Peru? Like the, do Peruvians look over at Bolivia and and see that example? Does that like further a sense of viability for a similar project? Both Bolivia and in recent times, Chile have been like have been another option for Peru to be like, look at that, because they're countries that we've had so much, so much history with tied into I think that like in Venezuela, for example, yes, it's the same continent, but Peruvians and Venezuelans aren't that culturally similar as Bolivians and Chileans are with Peruvians. And so Chile, they just voted to create a new constitution, getting rid of their constitution that was created under a neoliberal dictatorship, which is the, the exact same thing that the Peruvians are fighting for. And then in Bolivia, on the other hand, has given so much inspiration for Peruvian native people. For example, you'll see at the protests more people using our version of the Wipala, which is also the official flag in Cusco. And it's it, it kind of looks like the LGBTQ flag, even though it, uh, it predates that, the pride flag, but it has like a, a bluer, a lighter blue line. Anyway, um, you see these popping up more at the protests and also just solidarity with the Wipala, solidarity with Native people, because the struggles are definitely tied to one another. But I think that Peru will have to make its own way and obviously its own revolution, its own type of construction of a new state. And I would say that, I mean, I think Bolivia, we can see that there is a lot of popular socialist support. There is a sector like Jinin Anya's government and Camacho's, that there are mm -hmm. a lot of far right, white, wealthy people in power, but I think that most of the people there are very popular. Whereas in Peru, because of the struggle that happened in the 70s, 60s, 80s, and 90s with this insurgency, this complete and total campaign for anti-communism, anti-leftism, that mm -hmm. Peru is going to have to do a lot more building of a socialist, of a popular movement. Whereas like, there's more of that element already existing in Chile and for so long now in Bolivia. I think any successful left-wing movement, that's going to be an essential part, indigenous people, obviously, and it, it's been an essential part in Bolivia and, and in Chile with the Yende, there was just this great flowering of indigenous culture kind of under Allende, I know, and, and, and the movement that brought Allende to power. So much of the music from that time, is, I just love it. Inti Ilamani and... Mm -hmm. I had the pleasure of seeing Inti Ilamani live once when I was a kid. Really? Oh, wow. How have we not talked about this? That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. I went to this artsy camp in Michigan called Interlochen, and it's pretty, it's, uh, it's, it's, they're pretty legit. I mean, like I was there for, for acting and theater and there was, they had like a proper orchestra for kids my age. And these kids were amazing. It was like going to oh, see wow. a city symphony orchestra. But anyway, so the camp is such a big deal for art and stuff that they would have some pretty big name people come by to perform and i got to see until Amani play yeah it's they're they're still my jam a lot of times just like in the shower or driving around <laughs> or just whenever what else should people be paying attention to in terms of of the racial component of politics in peru you've got the white kind of comprador class you would call them you've got mestizos. we call them pitucos 
Pitucos. Pitucos. They, they're like in, you know, the Lima preppy, bougie, kind mm. of like I'm better than you person, likes to travel, maybe is an Instagram influencer. These are the types of people who would talk more about U.S. politics and Trump or Biden. <laughs> And then they said nothing about the protests until like people were like, what, what is wrong with you that are happening outside of their house? Yeah, they're definitely the kind that would like vote for a right winger, but pretend that they're voting for a left winger. But ultimately, they lie. They, they vote with their pockets. They vote with their mm. money and they don't want to lose their power. They don't want to lose their, their financial domination. Yeah. Um, and what's cool about the. The revival of a, of a left-wing popular movement, ha- you know, probably happening here in Peru now is that it's, it's reminding a lot of people. And so I'm 23 for clarity. I'm, you know, very new, I think, to politics in terms of like, just because of my age and other Peruvians my age that are, have always been looking for something like this, have finally like released our frustrations about the extreme poverty, the extreme injustice that we, we see in Peru. And we're learning about our own history. And we're learning about, you know, the movements of, of the 60s and at this time in Latin America where mm. popular movements were rising up, especially in how we had our own Hugo Chavez, who was General Juan Velasco Alvarado. Right. right. You know, he inspired Hugo Chavez. He did he did a revolution. He, he created like the, Bol- the Bolivian revolution. I mean, Bolivarian revolution. Sorry. Mm. Like in, in his own way that he took powers through the presidency and created radical change, nationalized petrol, the gas industries, nationalized a lot of land, did a land reform that was radical, that none of these, I would say again, pitucos, but also like these landlords in, in the mountains and in the jungle wanted to give up, give up their land and give it back to the people that took it and create indigenous owned co-ops that used to be these large plantations that enslaved these indigenous people. Now they were divided into co-ops to get their own land. And it's very unfortunate that he was also ousted through a U.S.-supported coup and continuous history of the United States in collaboration with the Peruvian national bourgeoisie screwing over indigenous working class. Yeah, he is a fascinating figure. One that tends to get overlooked. I'm you know, sure his, his politics play a role in that. But yeah, I heard the story actually that it was that a young Hugo Chavez actually met the these members of the uh, Peruvian military at the time. Yes. And, yes. Yeah. That's that's another thing too is that he he was a military guy just like Hugo Chavez and mm-hmm. he the military military through being involved with an, another indigenous agricultural labor uprising had a lot of those populist ideas put into mm-hmm. the military and when they saw that the government wasn't going to do anything about it wasn't going to actually bring a radical change to the plight of indigenous people that they were like all right we're we're, we're just going to do it ourselves. And through a coup, but also through like, you know, these formal institutions, he, he was able to create change. And of course, the, this, the bourgeois class in Peru was not happy about that and had to, had to get him out. But this is all to say this man was definitely like the way that indigenous and not just indigenous too, because also like the mestizos as well in Peru are also very oppressed or Afro-Peruvians. I just would say that in Peru, I think that like in the United States, we have a lot of, like, we could say that the group that probably faces the most type of institutional and state violence is Black people just on, like, a data number. Mm-hmm. Um, and in Peru, 
while it does exist against Afro-Peruvians, I think that a lot of it is also against the indigenous Peruvians, just because, you know, there, there's just more historical ties into that. Though oppression does work very differently, I think that indigenous people have definitely had their greatest share of violence committed against them. And what is also cool about Alvarado is that he was the president that made Quechua and Aymara an official language in Peru, um, which we, we, I think Peru was the first country in Latin America to recognize an indigenous population and say sorry for what the state has done to them. They also said sorry to Afro-Peruvians, though much hasn't changed. Still, at least they got an apology. He's really a fascinating figure, as General Velasco. Just kind of wrapping up the modern political history of Peru before we move to the current situation. I mean, there's so many interesting stories. We could do five episodes, but I think <laughs> right. Alan Garcia is maybe worth touching on for just a few minutes. So... This was a guy from the, uh, safe to say, formerly revolutionary left party yeah. in Peru. He was elected in the 80s, and then he was elected again in 2006. He was under investigation for corruption, as every Peruvian president has been over the last 35 years. Right. Is that right? Yeah. Ended up killing himself when the cops were closing in on him. It was definitely an attention-grabbing way to go. This was kind of an attention-grabbing person in general, kind of a silver-tongued, kind of charismatic guy, but just another figure that sold out the left, that sold out Peru. What should people know about Alan Garcia? I think what happened with Alan Garcia in the same way with uh, Ollanta Humala is it Mm -hmm. shows the flaws with these blatantly social democratic uh, reformist kind of candidates and the fact that, yeah, you can be confronted by these powerful Peruvian bourgeoisie and American bourgeoisie. And next thing you know, he's signing a free trade deal with the United States, screwing mm-hmm. over Peruvians. But he's supposed to be an anti-imperialist, right? You know, I think that he's just proof that these people, these reformists, these social democrats want to go into a system and think that they'll change the system through its institutions, these peaceful means. But really what happens is that it changes you. And now, mm-hmm. you know, you sold out your people, you sold out your cause. You're actually uh, targeting communists and other leftists more than you are right-wingers. You're letting mm-hmm. the right-wingers get into power. And I think that that shows, um, again, another fundamental flaw with their ideology. If we ever want to actually alleviate the issues that's happening in Peru or anywhere in the world, and that at the end of the day, these people are put into a position because of their ideology that they will have to sell out. Um, right. And there's, uh, there's some conspiracy. I don't, I don't know the answer this, but I thought I'd just put it out there because I thought it was funny that some Peruvians, I mean, it'll always be your, your grandfather or your uncle that's on WhatsApp telling you, oh, you know what? Alan Garcia is not actually dead. He's hiding in Colombia. Like, um, that, yeah, they, they're really, they're convinced. I swear. I'm like, we've, we've seen the autopsy. We've seen the picture, but no, they're like, no, 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 no. He's alive. There's just no way. But yeah, and it's, it's kind of, it's incredible the way that Odebrecht has really just gotten every Peruvian politician that could exist. And there's about 65 or 68 Peruvian Congress people right now that are under investigation for charges of corruption to even murder. But because mm. of, I think it's Article 128 in the Constitution, because of their immunity, as long as they're in office, they will not be charged. They will not actually see justice. And if they resign immediately after something happens, then they're, they're guilt-free, which is why you saw a lot of these ministers resigning after 
Inti and Brian were murdered by the police. What I remember from Alan Garcia's death was just the kind of collective shrug. A lot of people have become just so cynical about politics. And I don't know, I, I, I didn't see anyone really lamenting his death. But... Oh, they make jokes. They make jokes yeah. about it all the time. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Like, they, they, no, but, but the people really are just so unconcerned that they're actually like, they don't care, they don't talk about it, or they make fun of it, which is just like, woof. That's a lot. But yeah, there's a lot of distrust against politicians, I think. And it, it, what makes me sad about it partially is that it's created a culture of also nihilism. And people are like, well, look, our left wingers are, who are really center left. Our left wingers are corrupt. Our right wingers are corrupt. The center mm-hmm. is corrupt. There's just corruption and there's nothing that we can do about it. It's just terrible. And it's, it's sad to see. But that is also being countered with a rise of people, young people, especially that are getting involved and just getting tired of it. Their yeah. parents had to deal with this situation. They don't want to have to live with it any, any further. Um, yeah. Well, we'll kind of start to move towards uh, more recent events here. You've got these protests that are going on now, a lot of youth involvement, and maybe people, you're really becoming engaged in a real, at least visible way. Would you trace that back to the 2017 election to some extent? I just, it just kind of anecdotally, I, I knew people there at the time. There were a lot of young people who, who felt like, well, we've got to do what we can to keep another Fujimori from getting the presidency. Would you kind of trace what's going on now to 2017? Would you say that people were kind of activated back then by that presidential race? I'll say two, one thing about it, because I was actually in Lima around the time of the election, but I was underage, so I couldn't vote. But one, voting in Peru is compulsory. And so people are voting in the first place they've got to. You could abstain by writing a big X on it, but people are, are voting. I did see a lot of a lot of people just say that in the same way people here voted for Biden or voted for Hillary Clinton, that they were not mm-hmm. excited about it. There was yeah. nothing really exciting about this candidate. In fact, they used to make fun of, he had a mascot, which was because his initials was PPK in, in Spanish, in Peru specifically, we call guinea pigs gui. And so mm-hmm. he had a mascot that was Pepe Cui. So it was like a <laughs> guinea pig that was like him, whatever. It was weird that um, when, what ended up coming out in 2017 later was how they would just hang up the, the guinea pig and they would like pretend to eat it because also in Peru we eat guinea pigs. Right. Um, not everyone, but yeah, like that's, that's just a thing that's done in Peru and Ecuador. Mm-hmm. And so... No, but I wouldn't say the people were excited about the, that election as they are about this upcoming one. And I would say that this upcoming one, just because of one, the political crisis that is going on right now, but also that you have the coalition like Juntos por Peru, which a lot of people do think might actually be successful. And it would be crazy to see that a more, more so than like in recent years, a left-wing coalition with the Communist Party as part of that coalition having Veronica Mendoza as their president. And so people, and just the situation that's been going on now, the fact that they're seeing young protesters, another striker in Ica was murdered too, 20 years old, three young men in their 20s being murdered so blatantly at, just for protesting. The young people are, are angry and want to see change in the way that the 2017 election was just more like, I just don't want Keiko as president versus mm-hmm. now it's, I have something to fight for. Right, right. Pedro Pablo Kuczynski, not an inspiring figure. Maybe not most 
maybe most known for um, saying that Peru is like a quiet dog that should basically not, yeah. it should try not to make too much noise and, and serve its master. And that's um, exactly how he feels about Peruvian people. Yeah. Well, this is a guy who spent most of his life outside of Peru. Is that, I mean, he's at least educated outside of Peru. Right. I, I compare him a lot. I compare him and I think Francisco Segasti as just because of their, like their, their work. As, as like the Peruvian Ricardo Hausman, you know, they've mm. U.S. Ivy League educated, working for the IMF or working mm-hmm. for a World Bank. Or, case, case. So they're, they're, they're definitely these people that will cow- not only cower to imperialists, but like lead the war for the imperialists. I think Peru is the center of, hey, Lima Group. It's named after it, named after our capital. Yeah, it's I guess the comparison that comes to mind for me is Goni in Bolivia this foreign educated president who, who became president in this kind of tumultuous time before Evo came to power, whose cultural ties to the country seem to be weak, foreign educated and very just blatantly doing the work of capital. It's, I mean, somewhere like Latin America, the hand of, of foreign capital is very, and history is just, you know, littered with examples of these well-meaning reformists who, mm-hmm. you know, in Latin America and elsewhere who, who tried to who maybe you can say had good intentions in some ways, but but you've really got to have an ideological kind of backbone and a revolutionary point of view if you're going to achieve anything, which which maybe yeah. they do in this uh, new coalition that they have now. Um, I think that Veronica Mendoza, for at least I could say for Paga, the Marxist-Leninist Communist Party in Peru, that she is just a further step into really transitioning Peru, really bringing it so that we can talk about socialism, we can talk about Marxism, Leninism, seriously, without bringing up Sendero Luminoso. <laughs> and we're seeing a lot of politicians, a lot of Congress people seeing how more popular Patria Roja and Veronica Mendoza are getting, that they're starting to call, they're calling them Sendero Luminoso, mm. which is unfathomable because Patria Roja actually had many physical violent battles with with Sendero Luminoso. They had their members killed by Sendero Luminoso. Right. But they're like, oh, they're Sendero Luminoso, they're terrorists, communism terrorists, to just shut down any of that conversation. But Veronica Mendoza, who is in a co- coalition with them, is becoming more popular. And I think that the center and the right wing and the oligarchy in Peru are fearful of that. And so they want to keep bringing up the remnants of the anti-communism from the actual violence people did see in the in the 80s and 90s and to try to get mm-hmm. them to, to shut down that conversation. But I don't think it's working as well as they want it to. I remember talking to someone from Peru who insisted that she had ties to this Sendero Luminoso. It's just, I guess that's just the kind of all-purpose kind of, of thing that's used to discredit anyone that's, that's on the left. Um, oh, it's like calling, like saying China, China, Putin, China. It's like literally mm-hmm. Putin and China in the United States is like Sendero Luminoso <laughs> in Peru. Like, okay, everything is Sendero, slightly left Sendero Luminoso. Terrorism. Right, right. Although they were famously kind of, I don't know if tribal is the word, but they, they didn't necessarily, like you say, get along with a lot of other people themselves, the Sendero Luminoso. They, they considered them all revisionists, and mm-hmm. that meant enough to be killed for. And so it, what, another problem with them, I think there's a lot of achievements we can say, hell, they were like 10,000 people, largely indigenous. There's obviously a real sentiment of wanting revolutionary change, of wanting mm-hmm. Marxism in the country, but one of their problems was that they were dogmatic and 
they would murder other leftists for being revisionist in their eyes or even other indigenous people for not immediately getting getting the the project that they were trying to build right although i think even at one point they were um Closing was uh, Sendero Luminoso people who were closing in on the presidential palace when Fujimori was there and threatened to even. Well, I think that was our MRTA. Oh, okay. MRTA, yeah. They, yeah, they kidnapped the entire like Japanese embassy when the, the emperor came. They did a lot, even though they were much smaller, they did a lot. And they definitely made the CIA afraid. The CIA <laughs> released a report that said MRTA is one of the biggest obstacles of U.S. interest in South America. And I think that's a that's an achievement for them. That's a what's it called? That is an award, a compliment. Yeah, that's something to be proud of, I think. So after PPK, very uninspiring neoliberal right wing politician. You had Martin Viscara, same party yeah. as PPK. Mm-hmm. But he was there for, I guess, about two years after PPK. PPK was formally impeached. Uh, yes. Finally. PPK resigned. He was okay. He was about. He was about. He to was be about impeached. to be impeached, yeah. but he resigned with like a seventeen percent approval rating. Nobody liked him. That was because he pardoned Fujimori. I mean, that was like the unthinkable you could do. The whole reason right. people even voted for you was because you were not Fujimori and you were not going to be beneficial to Fujimori. And then you did it because you got caught for corruption. Oh, that was yeah. so unpopular. I think before this November, with you know three presidents in one week, that was the last time that I can seriously remember the whole. Not only just the whole country being on fire, but Peruvians internationally being on fire because that was the yeah. that was a huge betrayal. Yeah, well, it was just so blatantly corrupt. It was just such a blatant quid pro quo because yes. he was trying to because you had a, a Fujimorist Congress that was after him. There's a lot of kind of intra right wing um, drama that's going on in this period. But finally, you have Martin Viscara who comes out on top, who becomes president. He has, I guess he had the image with some people as being this guy who's, you know, he was finally one who was going to drain the swamp, I guess you would say. He had this image of he was just going after the corruption. And speaking of of kind of Western reporting of all this, I was listening to a report on public radio, and they framed the kind of recent protest as strictly a matter of people angry that the Viscara was removed. And maybe this was some more kind of intra-right turmoil. Well, how exactly, how and why was Viscara removed from the presidency? So Viscara was removed from the presidency because they thought that he committed some corruption when he was a mayor in like 2011 Mm -hmm. and before he could await any type of like further investigation or a trial. They they actually did open up like charges against him, but the, the Congress... They, this was actually the second time that they tried to impeach him. They tried to impeach him a few months ago, and it was unsuccessful. And then again, and this time, obviously, it was su- successful. But mm-hmm. I don't believe, and I, I know that, I don't even believe, I know that people are not just mad that Viscara was removed because mm-hmm. people had conflicts with Viscara. During this COVID p- pandemic, there were medical workers that were protesting against his utter failure to do anything substantial for the Peruvian people. I mean, right. Peru is one of the worst COVID affected countries in terms of like how many people have died and how many people are hospitalized. Mm-hmm. And Viscara has let that go. <laughs> Viscara is like, he's going to be known as the president that let, like allowed almost... I would say even amount um, without trying to be dramatic, but it amounts to like a genocide of Peruvian people once again mm. the, with the, the severe neglect of 
the medical industry of hospitals allowing private clinics to charge what most Peruvians can nowhere near afford. And I think he did piss off some of the capitalists when he threatened to, oh, what's that word? To expropriate some expropriate. industry. There to, we go. He's yeah. going to expropriate the <laughs> private medical clinics. Expropriese, as uh, comrade Hugo Chavez used to yeah, say. Yeah, exactly. Uh, oh, I forgot the word. But yeah, so he was going to expropriate the, the medical industry. And mm-hmm. that for a little bit, people were like, oh, wow, maybe he is a populist because he's going after these corrupt politicians. He might expropriate this. Like he's fighting against the private clinics and telling them to lower the charges for us. But medical workers and medical unions are like, no, he's not really benefiting our, our people at all. He, he shouldn't just say it. He should actually do it because mm-hmm. we need that. Our, our one, the healthcare and also the education system in Peru, of course, as we know in the Constitution, being so reliant on privatization has really one ruined the quality of the public infrastructure that people just can't rely on it and so they go into the private sector and they can't afford it right right it seems like martin viscara may be just a, a slightly more savvy uh, in terms of his branding version of ppk but one who I like cuomo <laughs> yeah <laughs> i compare him to cuomo <laughs> I mean, just a massive failure. I mean, it's, it's tragic, the numbers you hear in terms of their handling of COVID. But so you had Martin Viscara, he was ousted. You had Manuel Marino in the presidency for exactly a week. Is that right? It is. Yeah, I think we had Francisco Sagasti was announced to be the president within the week of the announcement of Marino as president, which, oof. That's just, I mean, he'll always go down as the uh, president that was there for a week, but he's still active in politics. And when people want justice against him for ordering police repression of these protests, what I think is so telling and just a greatest example of how and the Peruvian Congress that voted to impeach Viscata, how interested they were in mostly just benefiting the mining and agriculture sectors, the bourgeoisie there in Peru, is that during that week, there's political turmoil in the country. There are young people and old people. People are injured. People are going to the hospital. It resulted in the murder of two young people in one day. And during this time, the Congress moves and proposes a bill that would legalize what is supposed to be illegal mining in the Amazon. <laughs> this shows like, like this country is all over the news, all of the headlines, the largest national march, and your focus is on getting mining legalized. Yeah, well, this is just another unelected guy who's in there just uh, making these totally controversial political moves. And also, I mean, the, the police brutality in Peru. Is that another area where you could maybe say that Peru is similar to Chile in terms of maybe a legacy of police brutality that you could trace back to the Fujimori era? I would say even even before that, really, because, again, the Peruvian state, when Peru, and we're going to go back to the beginning, but when Peru got its independence uh, as a nation, it was really just an independence for the criollo and the emerging aristocracy, then the emergent merchant class to have full and total control over the land in, in Peru before they had to adhere to some of the laws that the Bourbons were passing, the reforms they were passing, they gave more rights. I mean, I would say indigenous people had more rights under the Spanish empire than they did in just post-independence Peru. The institutions of slavery, sharecropping basically were allowed to flourish. And so from Peru's inception to even to this day, with a short blimp with uh, Velasco's government, Peruvian government has been one that was owned by a white and wealthy bourgeoisie 
or aristocracy in the early times. And so because of that, police and, and the police in Peru have always, and the military as well, have always been just an extension of that violence. They've been the, the, the armed wing of, of the state. And so they've always been violent against the people. They've always been classist. They've always been racist. They've always took the side of, of the state against their own people until Velasco's generation. And after that, they had to have an extreme reform of the military and to make sure that popular movements like, like Velasco's would never occur again. They could never have a military betray the state. So the Peruvian police have always been very violent. And so it was no surprise to see that the first reaction to the protest was to murder and to injure. Mm. And we have a video of a police officer from this unarmed protester. And this was in November. This wasn't like years ago. This was November. An unarmed protester and another police officer in the back is heard saying, kill him, kill him, kill him. And then he's trying to shoot and he can't shoot because the, the barrel is stuck. And he's like, he says it in curses and he says, this is stuck. So the only reason that that man wasn't murdered by the police on camera right there so easily was because their 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 weapon was stuck. Their weapon was kind of crappy. And that saved his life. And that just goes to show how violent and how, you know, ultimately how much hatred they have for the people the yeah. police officers are trained to. And of course, the police and, and the military have kind of played an outsized role in Latin American politics. Just as a side note, you know, it is interesting, the example of uh, Velasco, and, and now Hugo Chavez in Venezuela, who is uh, a military man. But it, it seems that when the left has succeeded in Latin America, and I guess you could say in, in Cuba as well, it's been because this kind of kind of military, but, but pride for the country, maybe a kind of a left-wing nationalism that has reclaimed the state against these foreign interests, which are represented by the comprador class. So is, uh, is this something that's talked about often in Peru on the left? Oh, absolutely. And to your point about nationalism, which I find funny because the, the movement, like, look, this is a, another way, but Belarus, for example, you see the opposition they're protesting and they changed their flag. They've, they've done, they've been like very anti the state, anti what all their, their institutions and iconography and all that. Whereas in Peru, you have indigenous people walking, marching with the Peruvian flag in hand with the Wipala. There's mm -hmm. a great sense of love and pride for the country. In fact, we see it as like the bourgeoisie, they're not patriotic, they're not nationalistic because you have, you have so much disdain for the nation. They don't care. They, they, they're nationalistic to their class. They're class first mm -hmm. only. And Peru is a country made up of working class people, of peasants, of black and brown and, and native people. And they're selling them out to, yes, foreign interests to also benefit themselves. And the problem is the Peruvian military right now, just in, in more ways, I'd say that they're following the, the lead, that they're following the orders. They're attacking labor strikes in Ica mm. and protesters all over the country, because all over the country was protesting. It wasn't just in Lima or in any particular city. You have people mm. from the jungle to the mountains to the north, the south, the coast. Everyone, there was a large amount of protest. And I wouldn't say that it was necessarily left-wing either, even though I think the left-wing is coming out much stronger in this in the end. But there is a, still a distrust of the Peruvian police and the military and that they're one and the same. Yeah, that was going to be my next question is, if you could kind of identify a class character of these protests, it seems to me like it to some degree must vary geographically. 
and that mm-hmm. there are kind of different elements of these protests. How would you characterize these protests ideologically in terms of, of what's driving people out to streets? I think in the beginning, like in early November, right after when everything was really, really hot, that you could see all people, all different classes, all different races, groups, regions, everyone, even political ideologies were coming out and just saying like, oh, Congress is corrupt and we're against corruption, which is why as left-wingers, left-wingers have to talk about, well, what really brews the, the co- corruption in the country? It's, it's one, it's the constitution, it's neoliberalism that exists here. So what has sustained the sustained efforts, like the labor strikes in Ica and the, and the movements in, in Lima and all over the country, the ones that are still going on today are one that is a populist, working class, left-wing, nationalistic, left-wing, nationalistic kind of movement. The the youth, the LGBTQ youth and indigenous people and Afro-Peruvians in Lima are coming together, creating their own organizations, their own protests. The win that we just saw in Argentina in terms of legalizing abortion mm-hmm. has given inspiration to so many people in Peru, like Rocio, Santi Esteban. And so I would say that the, like the continued efforts are definitely one that is more left-wing than ever than the others to say, especially that of the movement of a new constitution, have a constitutional assembly, because the right-wingers aren't going to call for a constitutional assembly. The, the constitution supports everything that they stand for. Yeah. So it's the left-wingers that are saying, we need to change the constitution. And I think, unfortunately, Juntos por Peru actually did change their position on this. They started out saying that they wanted a new constitution and a constitutional assembly and now they're calling for a constitutional reform but Patria Roja is still calling for a new constitution in the style of of Chile. We have a popular assembly elected directly by and for the people and Mm -hmm. we create a new constitution altogether. This was a major part of the uh, pink tide governments that came to power in Venezuela, in Bolivia, in Ecuador, these constituent assemblies which came together to write uh, better constitutions, you know, very good constitutions. And in, in the case of, well, all, all three of these examples, I think people are giving a right to things like housing in Venezuela. So are people seeing this explicitly as a way to kind of bring Peru into this pink tide, into this movement of left-wing Latin American governments? Do they see oh. themselves com- yeah, in, in that way compared to these other examples that have succeeded? Well, I think that people in Peru, and unfortunately a bit of the left wants to not identify with that mm-hmm. it's very odd but because there's a lot of xenophobia in peru granted mm-hmm. it was headed by the right wing to look at venezuela and be like oh look at venezuela look look at those venezuelans coming into peru and creating violence stealing mm-hmm. like like peru's problems started when venezuelans migrated in mass to peru and so and then also just a lot of the propaganda against places like venezuela and colombia I mean, sorry, not Colombia, Cuba. And Peruvians are like, oh, okay, we're not going to do it exactly like them. We're going to do it our mm-hmm. own way. So, because it, unfortunately, there still is a lot of anti communism, anti socialism just between yeah. what they've seen in other parts of Latin America, despite not under, like, not maybe most of the people aren't connecting that this is an you know, imperialist problem. They're connecting it with a problem with socialism in conjunction with the continued red scare that's existing in Peru because of, you know, the civil war, that the left wing is not saying necessarily we're going to be like them, but that we're going to have our own thing going on. And kind of like in the style of the way Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is like, oh, well, we're going to have our own socialism, not like other socialism. 
Although they're not saying Scandinavia is anything important. <laughs> no, no one cares about Scandinavia. <laughs> There's no Peruvian Bernie Sanders talking about the Swedish. Uh, yeah, well, the know, welfare state, we're not really not really doing that. Yeah. So currently the president is Francisco uh, Sagasti, self-styled centrist politician from the Murata party, the purple party centrist party. He is kind of portraying himself as really a, a caretaker president who is going to be there until the next elections. Has that been the case? Is he kind of behaving himself after what just happened mm-hmm. with Marino or what's, what's the case with Sagasti? So, and I, 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 there was a reason why he was picked, right? Because he was a centrist. Mm-hmm. He's coming from this like center-left party, Partido Morado. I think they and, were the only party that didn't vote to to impeach Marino. Right, right. And then, but before uh, him, there was also talks that Rocio Santisteban might be one. And even though she does come from a party that did vote and she supported, she's a socialist. Yeah. But they ended up passing her up and said, "Okay, we're gonna we're gonna get Sagasti, and he is gonna quiet everyone down." And to a degree, he did. I should I should just I should correct myself real quick. Sagasti was he didn't vote to uh, impeach Fiscara. I think I said Marino. Okay. Yeah, Sagasti. Yeah. Um, and so they 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 brought in Sagasti to calm the struggle down because okay, we we can't have Merino, this neoliberal white right winger. People are upset about that, so maybe we should get someone that will be will be able to just persuade people to stop and and they he to a degree he did i was actually worried if they would pick rocio that they would you know that this would just fuel anti-socialism but they picked sagasti and sagasti promised oh we're gonna bring peru to stability it's okay now i'm not like merino and i'm not gonna use police repression and people did have a lot of hope for him until the repression of the strike in ica and it just goes to show that Sagasti, he can quote all the Cesar Vallejo poems that he wants to, but he's still, he's still just going to use the police against any popular movement when it comes down to it. And ultimately, it resulted in the murder of this 20-year-old Jorge Munoz Jimenez, who was a striking worker in Ica. And the protests in Ica are actually continuing to this day. They want a clearer law. So... There was the, the <laughs> this just again goes to show how their interests are with the agricultural and mining bourgeoisie that, you know, they passed the, the Schimpler law that mm-hmm. was great, allowing more exploitation for these agricultural companies like Camposol to further exploit their people. And so he, th- th- this law was passed and the workers in Ica are protesting because they're making like about 36 soles a day. That's about 10 US dollars a day. Mm-hmm. And, and they're working very, very long hours under dire conditions. Sometimes they don't even get lunch breaks, restroom breaks, because mm-hmm. they, they make enough money on how much they work and they're making so little as it is. So they started protesting against that law that would further their exploitation. It ended up getting repealed in about a few days or a week, even after the, the protest. Again, another murder of a young striker had to happen before anything was changed. And But there's still no law that actually benefits them or gives them any further advantages, anything beneficial to their labor rights. They're still in dire conditions. It's just now they're not going to be as dire. But the struggle continues on because now they need a law that's going to grant them more rights and clarify exactly what rights they do or don't have. Right now it's very iffy and the government isn't really saying much about that. So... They're protesting to this very day. And we as the mm-hmm. Pumas Collective, collective of left-wing Peruvians in North America, because we have some people in Canada, we've been gathering funds and 
giving it out to trusted organizers and and some of the labor strikers in ECA right now. Yeah, people should definitely check that out. Instagram, they are Pumas Collective, instagram.com slash Pumas Collective. You can get some uh, news about this labor struggle in ECA. And I would tell people, stay tuned to what's happening in Peru. It sounds like it, if nothing else, the establishment political forces are are very weak, it seems at this moment, and very discredited. Absolutely. Well, we got to see, you know, what's going to happen when we get to decide on a new president. People are also calling for a whole new Congress, since many of these people didn't win with any popular support, any popular vote, and yet they still get to make laws and determine they have so much influence over our political system in Peru, and yet... They weren't voted by a popular election. Many of them were voted through another another self-coup and another suspension of the Congress. Well, so we'll see. We'll see what gets done and also how much more the movement for a new constitution grows, especially as Chile is working on collecting their delegates for their constitution. People should stay tuned to keep an eye on both of these countries, Chile, Peru. And I I think some of the most uh, exciting things for the left just generally are going on in Latin America right now. Bolivia, very exciting, the example there. We, we should be paying attention and we should be learning, taking Listen, notes. Listen, I'll say this, I've said this before and I'll say it again. If it wasn't for the United States and Europe, Latin America would have been socialist ages ago. I, I think you might be right. Maybe we're slowly getting there. We we're going to get there though. So. We're going to get there. Yeah. Despite it. Kayla Popoche, you can follow her on Twitter at Kayla Pop underscore. Yeah. Anything else you'd like to add? Anything else uh, that, that people should know? You know, nothing, just like stay tuned with the Pumas Collective. And also I'm a contributor with Anticonquista and I am coming out with a show next year called Espiritu de Tupac. Because we Peruvians, all we do is talk about Tupac Amaru. Like, yeah, like Bolivia, they got their Tupac Atari, we got Tupac Amaru and we talk about them all the time. And I, am, I do want to talk a little bit more about like the revolutionary history of Peru. And I think it'd be really exciting to talk to some Peruvian organizers, definitely check out what Pumas Collective posts because it's, it's difficult to find information about Peru, especially in the English language. Mm-hmm. And also thank you for having me on so I could talk about this. Yeah, totally. And uh, perhaps we'll have you back at some point to talk about this next project. seems like awesome. really cool stuff. I'm going to yeah. stay for like a month. Anyway, I need to see family. There you go. I had a Peruvian girlfriend, so I went down to Lima a few times, which is pretty. I got to see a little bit of the country. We did some hiking around Juarez. Laguna Sesente Nueve. Um, we went to Cusco, Machu Picchu. There's still more I need to see. It's a very big, very geographically <laughs> diverse place. Yeah. Unfortunately, though, where my grandmother lives in Lambayeque, there's the village of Pancora. And right now there's a state of emergency there because there's no clean water. Mm. And so we'll see how that goes when I go visit Lambayeque. But yeah, that, that's another thing. There's a lot of struggles going on in Peru between the medical institution. There's also the struggles with the education reform, a constitutional reform, the labor strike, actual resources in terms of water. Peru's got a lot of different struggles that are going on. They just all need to be unified under one singular movement, one type of advancement, because unfortunately, a lot of things are very stratified. They're not really united into one, one type of thing. But I do think that ultimately... At the heart of each different struggle, despite them you know, thinking that they're disconnected, it is united under a fight against neoliberalism and against okay. the oligarchy domination and capitalism in Peru. Yeah. Fingers crossed. It's, it's a beautiful country, wonderful people. and oh, Great uh, culture. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Good food. Great uh, food. Great food. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much. 
Yeah, this was really great. Thank you. Ya llegó el hombre joven ya está aquí con su alegría de vivir por los demás. Salga usted, padre humillado, salga usted, padre ofendida. Es momento de empezar a trabajar por los niños que engendramos, por los más justos reclamos, por la patria que queremos alcanzar. Trabajadores del campo, de la fábrica o taller, del hogar o la oficina, estudiante a ti también. Unido se hará escuchar.